The ability to multitask is not any longer as highly regarded as it used to be. Multitasking was viewed as kind of the, the secret sauce, so to speak, to productivity. It was thought that the more you were able to do and to get done at once, the sooner you would be able to, to cross everything off of your to-do list and the more time that you would have for yourselves. However, not only have studies supported this, but maybe you have recognized that as we are trying to, to carry on multiple tasks at once, what ends up happening is we tend to do most of them rather poorly, rather than being focused on one at a time. I'm confident that you have experienced this in one way or another. Maybe the most simple way is if you are trying to, uh, to write a text or an email to somebody while also holding a conversation with somebody else. And as you are talking with this individual while typing or texting, you suddenly find yourself typing or texting the very words that you just spoke to the individual or that you just heard them speak to you that have no relationship whatsoever to the other message that you were writing. You weren't able to focus on the one thing. I recall receiving, it must have been shortly after uh, I first became a dad, a t-shirt that had a little cartoon on the front that depicted, uh, especially any chance that we have to uh, to point out what doofus's dads are, but especially how poor uh, we are at multitasking, the cartoon depicted a dad who was changing a diaper. And as he was changing this diaper, his head was turned and he was trying to watch the game on the television. And as you look on the changing table, he was trying to put a diaper on the family dog while the little baby had its head buried in the dog food. Multitasking is not only not the most efficient way to get things done, but actually this morning we see that we take that a, a level further, another, another step up, and realize that it's not just a matter of being difficult or hard, but in one particular area, it's impossible. And that area is to think that we can multitask or focus on both God and money. And that is the hard truth that we are faced with this morning, that we can't serve both God and money. And it's not just an emphasis that it's really hard or difficult or challenging to do, but rather that it's impossible to do it. Now, does it matter who writes the words that we are considering as we reflect on this subject matter this morning? Would you go to a financial planner who has never managed any significant amount of money or made money or handled money at all? you're probably going to look for advice from somebody who knows what he's doing, who knows how to handle her money. And how appropriate then, as we consider these words from Ecclesiastes this morning, that we're doing just that. Not only somebody that was able to, to manage and handle a great amount of wealth, as Solomon was, but combine that wealth with the wisdom that Solomon had, one of the wealthiest and wisest men in the world, and he is the one writing these words to us this morning from Ecclesiastes. And so, yes, let's pay attention to what he tells us. And exactly what does he tell us? Well, he comes right out of the gates in verse 10, warning us, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. You will notice that Solomon does not say that money or wealth are bad or evil or wicked. Money is not the enemy. 
That is not his concern, but notice he states very clearly that whoever loves money never has enough. And his sentiment was echoed by the Apostle Paul in our second reading this morning, who was writing to another young pastor, warning him to warn also his congregation to say, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money is the root. Not money is evil. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, we as Christians are really good at kind of crafting our own workaround so that this doesn't apply to us. Of course, I don't love money. That is not a concern for me. And it might be easy for us to convince ourselves that, but, but what if we reflect on what money represents to us? Then maybe we're a little bit more convicted. So no, I don't worship money, but what does money represent? But for some of us, security? Status? Stuff? Yeah, those things I'm a little more concerned about. So when I I worry about my finances, really this is a matter of security. And for us, that feeling of security is attached to how much money we have. When it comes to, to status, what are we really concerned about? Status means being able to have the freedom and the flexibility to, to do the things that we want, to have the experiences that we want, to give our children the opportunities that, that we want them to have. That's status. And of course, stuff. To be able to buy and, and purchase things that maybe I didn't even know I wanted until I saw that somebody else had it. So we fool ourselves thinking, no, I don't love money, but we love all of these things which are directly attached to or tied to money. Or are they? Because if God is not a liar, does he not promise us all three of these things and so much more? Does God not address our need for security and status and stuff? Doesn't God tell us that we don't need to worry about security because if he takes care of the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees, isn't he also going to take care of the crown of his creation and not just our physical temporal needs, but to give us the assurance that our names are written in the book of life, that he has also taken care of our our salvation? That, dear friends, is real security that money can never provide. And what of, of status? God tells you that you are his his dearly loved, chosen, precious treasure, to name just a few of the descriptions, and again, that your name is written in the book of life? Is there a higher status that you can achieve with any amount of money or wealth this side of heaven? No, that, dear friends, is real status that Jesus offers us. And stuff, are are we really chasing after the stuff that collects dust and is eaten by moths in this world when Jesus says, no, 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 you've got treasure stored up for you in heaven that moth and rust can't ever destroy. That's real stuff that matters. So God promises us that we already have all of those things that money only entices us or deceives to be able to to offer but can't really ever deliver. Looking back on these words from Ecclesiastes, you notice that if you break down the the section, it's kind of in in two parts almost. Verses 10 to 17 tend to be quite negative. 
and 18 to 20 are a little bit more positive. And I want to address something that, that we have to be careful of as Christians, that we don't draw the conclusion that people who have money or wealth are evil or wicked, or that their lives must somehow secretly be absolutely miserable. Because you're going to be pretty shocked then when you go up to that unbeliever who is rich beyond what you could ever imagine and you say, boy, I'm so sorry that your life just must be wretched and miserable. That's got to be awful. As he smiles and drives away to his beach house in his Bentley, thinking that you are off your rocker. The fact of the matter is that, that these words of Solomon, just like the Proverbs, they are general truths. They aren't principles that apply 100% of the time in every situation. But it's a general warning to be careful of our love for our attachment to stuff. And why is God so concerned about that? Because things are going to be all sorts of messed up if we love the possessions more than the provider. The church father, Augustine, really, he nailed this concept when he addressed it, calling it a disordered love is really what we have to be concerned about. He said it's not just this concern about loving bad things or evil things or wicked things. It's just as much a concern if we love good things, but we love the good things more than the giver of those good things. And if so, then we throw out of whack our entire relationship, not just with possessions and stuff, but with God as well. So a disordered love loves possessions above the provider, and God says, you can appreciate my blessings fully when I still have that number one place in your heart. And what does it look like to see that? That's really verses 18, 19, and 20. And if you look again at those verses compared to the first section, not only will you notice the tone tends to be much more positive, but you'll notice something else that is completely missing in the first section. God. God isn't mentioned once in that first section where Solomon is warning against loving stuff. But in those last verses, notice how many times God is mentioned in connection with being the giver of those gifts and not just the giver of those gifts, but the one who actually gives us another blessing that we want to consider this morning, the ability to enjoy those gifts. That's exactly what he says in verse 19. He says, Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. So not only is God the giver of every good thing that we have, but he's also the giver of the gift of enjoying those things that he has graciously and generously given to us. Which kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it, why our world is so enamored with dollar amounts? What is it that makes the headlines but the latest, greatest sports contract that exceeds what somebody else made? Or the movie star who is now making this much per movie versus what was previously made? Are we to draw the conclusion that there is a, a direct correlation between the amount of money that we have and joy in this life? The more money I make, the more joy will follow. You know that's not the case. You know that's not true. You know that's a lie and a deception. Why can't a professional athlete find as much joy and happiness making half a million a year as he does 40 million a year? 
because our ability to appreciate what God gives us has nothing to do with amounts or quantity and everything to do with acknowledging God gives us the ability to enjoy and appreciate his blessings. And that's the only way that we can make sense of what Solomon is, is addressing when he says, I have seen as many malcontent, miserable millionaires as I have peaceful paupers who enjoy what little they have because they recognize what they have is a gift from God. Now, if it's God who gives us the ability to treasure these earthly gifts, isn't that all the more true on the grandest scale of all? Because of all the earthly, physical, temporal blessings that he has given us, there is a gift that he has given us that will surpass any, any contract, no matter how many zeros might follow after it, any business deal. The gift that, that surpasses all of them is the one we have in Jesus. And if we can't find the joy and satisfaction in Jesus, that greatest gift, why should we think that we would ever find it in the inferior gifts that are far lesser than Jesus? Do you do an assessment? Do you, do you daily find joy in that treasure that you have in Jesus? Do you rejoice that you have a Savior who walked and lived and carried out perfectly, without fail, every expectation of his Father in your place and credits it to you by faith? Do you take joy in knowing whatever sin you have sinned or any sin that you will sin in the future? has absolutely already been paid for by the blood of Jesus when he ended up at Calvary's cross? Do you find joy in knowing that he didn't stay dead, but that his resurrection promises you a victory that surpasses any experience this side of heaven and gives you the promise of an eternity in heaven? To find joy in that treasure, first and foremost, is the only way we're going to have a right, healthy relationship with the other stuff that he gives to us to manage as well. If you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, and you can do it easily in one sitting this week at some point, you'll notice this theme, and you, you heard it repeated a number of times just in the first reading this morning, of, of meaningless. Solomon, at the end of his life, recognized, even though he had untold riches and wisdom and the ability to do anything, have any experience he wanted, at the end of his life, he said, if God isn't in the picture, if we don't recognize he's the one that's given us all of this, it's meaningless. Well, what we want to know is how do we avoid that meaningless life and how do we live a meaningful life? And that comes from, again, seeing what we have in Jesus and acknowledging that that treasure actually changes our perception of money and wealth and how we handle that gift that God gives to us. A peasant farmer after months of, of toiling, was excited to finally grab his, his harvest, to, to bring in everything that he had worked and toiled so hard uh, to grow. And as he, he wriggled that, that first carrot out of the ground, it was absolutely astonishing. The most beautiful carrot he had ever seen. Flawless, the biggest carrot he had ever seen. And, and as he was appreciating this, this blessing, he was overwhelmed with gratitude because he knew that without his king, he would not have been able to grow even a single carrot, let alone a beautiful one like that. 
because he knew that, that it was his king who had provided all of the farming equipment to allow him to grow it. It was his king who assured him uh, and all of the peasants that their families would be taken care of. They'd have enough food so that he could focus on working the land and that he didn't have to worry about enemies coming in and ransacking or pillaging their stuff or ruining their crops. And so he, he thought to himself, I, I, have to, I have to go and give this, this beautiful carrot to my king as an expression of gratitude. And he did just that. So he went to the king and he presented him with this prize carrot. And of course, the, the king himself was overcome with gratitude and appreciation at this generous gift. And, and in return, he said to the peasant farmer, I will give you more land for you uh, to farm so that you can continue to produce these kinds of, of crops. As you might expect, the king's generosity, news of it spread around the kingdom. And there was another peasant, one who was uh, known for breeding prize-winning horses. He got wind of this and he thought to himself, well, if the king was generous to give this, this farmer additional land to grow his crops, maybe if I present him with a gift, maybe he'll give me more stables and he'll entrust me more to be able to breed additional horses. So he set out to go have an audience with the king, and he presented his prize-winning stallion to the king. And the king was very appreciative of this gift. He said, thank you. And then he dismissed him. And then the horse breeder, as he's walking away, he was a little bit miffed, and, and he paused and he turned around and he said, well, king... You know that, that news of your generosity has spread throughout the kingdom, and so I heard about how that farmer had come and given you a carrot, and you gave him more land to farm and, and to continue growing more crops. I thought that maybe if I brought you this prize-winning stallion, you'd give me more stables or the ability to, to breed even more horses. The king, the king explained. You see, when the farmer came to me and he gave me that carrot, he gave me that carrot because... He appreciated and he loved me. You brought this stallion because you love you. And that's the difference that Jesus makes in freeing us from being possessed by possessions, from being attached in an unhealthy way to, to the many rich blessings that God has given to us. And as his grace continues to shape and mold our hearts and, and, and we hear of sin and grace and forgiveness again and again, we are more and more freed from any unhealthy attachment to stuff. And not only that, but God changes our perception of it, our perspective and what used to be a desire, a yearning to make more and spend more, now we have a different outlook on life. We see what God has given us as a means to give back to him to be a part of his kingdom building. To give back to him so that he might see that through our gifts, the gospel continues to spread to the ends of the earth. So that he might use our gifts to make sure that, that Jesus is passed on to our children and to the next generation. So that God might use our gifts to see that, that those who are spiritually hurting and don't know where to turn receive counseling. To see that those in our communities who are, are hurting and going without, that their needs are met. To know the treasure that we have in Jesus changes our relationship with the gifts that he gives to us. 
I'm going to challenge you to reflect on that a little bit with the final three months of this year. We've done this sometimes in the past, once in a while, a three-month giving challenge. You'll notice in your service folder, in the announcements, there's a QR code or in the email that you received this morning, a link to it. I encourage you to go. It's a very simple format. It's a sentence that just says, I will increase my weekly, monthly, quarterly, you just pick one, offerings by, and then you fill in the amount or percentage, and then you indicate whether it's a percent or an amount. That's it. About as simple as it could possibly be. And I encourage you to do that prayerfully as you consider over the course of October, November, December, how you might increase your giving to God to help build his kingdom. And of course, the, the reason it's just a three-month challenge is because then at the end of that challenge, you can reflect and say, well, what was the outcome? I increased my gifts to God and did I find myself in the poorhouse? Do I find myself struggling to make ends meet? Or maybe, do I see other blessings that God has granted in my life that I didn't anticipate? And, and if you find yourself in the poorhouse, by all means, you can go right back to the previous level of giving that you're giving right now. Otherwise, you might maintain it or even increase it in the new year as you plan your giving for that. And then as you fill out that form, I'll share with the congregation the results of that. They're all anonymous. It's just a, a general, here are what people are committing to. And you can include that in your prayers, that God, through our efforts, would grow each of us in the grace of giving. And that as he does so, we would be confident that he is freeing us from this deceptive lie that we can serve both God and money and free us to see that God allows us to serve him with money. May he bless our efforts. Amen.